good to go. We've gathered to worship the living God this morning. It's a beautiful day. Uh, we're getting ready for our summer serve of ministry that'll go on this next, next week. I've asked Pastor Mary if she would tell us some about that and pray for us later in the service. We're into Acts 18, which is, again, a breakthrough moment for the church, and we'll see a lot of exciting things there. I'm glad we're able to be here and be together. Let us enter into the presence of the Lord. Let us respond to his call to worship. We'll be reading Psalm 148 uh, responsively. As we get that up, I'll begin, and if you would respond. Praise the Lord from the earth, and we'll need to move slides. <laughs> Is that the… <laughs> yeah, you see, we're having a… We helped the software provider that gets us our presentation ser... uh, software, we helped them identify a problem in their software. Right now, they're working on it hard, and our volunteers are having to work around. Thanks so much. All right, we ready? Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His splendor is above all the earth and the heavens, and He has raised up for His people a monument, the praise of all His faithful servants. O Israel, the people close to his heart, praise the Lord. Let's stand and sing with all creation, all creatures of our God and King.
Amen and amen. Have a seat if you would. Well, greetings and welcome to each of you that are here on site with us this morning. We gather with lifted hearts and lifted voices to worship the Lord. And then together, uh, online and recorded, we're able to enter into the space with people, actually I'm discovering all around the country, but online and recorded, able to join with people there and in that way, bring the good news of Jesus crucified and risen everywhere through the country. So we're here together and then we're on a mission as we're with others who can't be here. A couple of things for today, I'll just give you some schedule. Uh, immediately following the service, we'll have the, under the canopy, the open-air uh, drive through on the north side entrance, coffee and Bowerman Donuts, great time to gather. Shortly after that at 10.15 in the basement classroom one, I'll gather for a time, uh, kind of open question and response things with um, the sermon, always happy to interact that way. I'll probably include a Tim Keller video. We've been looking at these two-minute statements from Dr. Keller and reflecting on them as well. So a lot of good things to be a part of. The big thing for this week, and you'll hear Mary talk about it later, is Summer Serve, a youth conference that begins here at Heart of Wyke this evening. So we'll be praying for that and want to be a part of that. Let me also say, for those of you here with us for a first time, we began to do our Connect card digitally. You can find, Christine has a small business card, and you can take this home. If you will uh, text this number, 616-202-1210, and just put the word connect, you'll get a simple form. Uh, If you'll give us your name, email address, that sort of thing, we can get you uh, on the weekly email, give you information, and just that connection uh, to life here in the body. Uh, I'll tell you a little uh, story. It turns out this is about how well I'm acclimating to living in Holland. You know, we came from a different part of the country and had a lot of things to learn, but there was someone in my household who had a birthday yesterday. And so where do Holland natives go on their birthday? You bet, we were at Crazy Horse. (laughs) So there we were, the waitress says, oh, I'm you're getting 30 or 40% off this? Mary Lynn said, you know, I'll take it. <laughs> we had a great evening and bumped into all kind of folks. I had no idea there'd be so many different heart of white people at a crazy horse on a Saturday night. We, we may need to go there more often and kind of do some visitation. How does that sound? Well, I told you I didn't have to mention your name. I was able to give that whole story without ever mentioning Mary Lynn. It's tough growing up as a pastor's wife, but she's strong and has made it. (laughs) The Lord is good. I'm so glad we're here and here together. And that again, even with people needing to care for their health, people need around the country, these sorts of things, we're able to be with them too. It's a good day in the Lord. I'm thankful that the faith has been handed to us. It's passed along generation by generation. It's not mine to figure out, but it's mine to hold faithfully and pass along. And so I love to use these questions from the Heidelberg Catechism. All this month, we've been looking at the one, uh, question 27. So let me raise the question, and then if you'll reflect and speak the answer. What do you understand by the providence of God? 
the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Let's sing together to the glory of God. I know not why God's wondrous grace. Good morning. It is so good to be worshiping with you here this morning. And as Pastor Bill said, he invited me to come and just share a few words about summer service week, which begins this afternoon in just a couple of hours. So we hold on to our hats. Uh, for 17 years, I've been privileged to be a part of this ministry. And it truly is my favorite week of the whole year. It really is. It's, it's so much fun. It's exhausting and exhilarating all at the same time. 
Three things come to mind when I was thinking about it last night, yesterday. The first thing is, it's interesting that you're uh, preaching on Acts this entire summer, but um, summer service week is Acts in action. It truly is. 150 kids, with half of them being from Hardawike. They do as was church as it was intended. They continually share a meal together. They continually worship together. They continually pray together, and they continually serve each other and their neighbor. And the Spirit hovers over this place in an amazing way, and lives are changed, first thing. Second thing, I have been so blessed in seeing how many of our own kids and middle schoolers, as they have experienced this week, they only come back later on in life as high school students or college students, they come back and they go out and serve. And it's so interesting, too, how many of these kids actually uh, choose a vocation, either ministry or mission work. So I'm um, just so excited to see them come back. And the third thing, it's all about the community serving the community. It's all, it's all ages on deck. And the worn out phrases are two things. How can I help you? And what can I do for you? Is there anything that you need? Just this morning, I had it already between countless individuals who donate time and financial support to the over 20 local businesses who have faithfully and consistently given to this ministry since it began. They donate resources or food to the many nonprofits that open up their doors and let our kids come in. They welcome them with open hearts. This community empowers our kids to then go out and serve the community. It truly is a reciprocal event. Everybody wins during summer service week. So again, thank you for your faithful support. We simply couldn't do it without you. And um, if you still wish to plug in, I do have a couple of openings left yet this afternoon on Wednesday afternoon and Thursday afternoon from about 1.30 to 3.30 if you wish to come and prep a ton of lunches sandwiches are in order. So um, if you would like to do that, just see me or you can contact Dee as well. But thanks again. It is, it is just such a blast and we can't wait to tell you about the highlights of it as, uh, as we come to an end this, this end of this week. So let's begin our time in prayer, shall we? Lord, <clears throat> we begin our community time of prayer with words from Micah 6 verse 8. Lord has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Almighty and compassionate Father, as we embrace this new week that lies ahead of us, help our eyes see what your heart sees. Teach us to hate sin and to be merciful to all who need mercy, who need a helping hand who need a gentle touch. Teach us to discern the truth and then to act fairly. And may our actions reflect that we are true and steadfast followers of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Through your Spirit, help us to honor your holy majesty, even through our inconsistent and flawed character. Thank you for the world that we live in. And although that because of sin there are so many blemishes, we also know that there is so much good and beauty and intricate design that we are blessed to enjoy and be a part of. 
with a spirit of humility. Use us as we step out into your world this week, whether it's right across the street, in our neighborhood, across our land, or across the oceans. Thank you for our country. We are so blessed to live in a country which allows us to freely worship you. But as a country who needs to return to being one nation under God, help us to find unity, motivation, and direction, and to better love our neighbors and share your gospel with those who surround us. Thank you for our state. We especially pray for them today. We think of Governor Whitmer. Bless her and give her wisdom and guidance as she makes decisions. We give you thanks for this beauty of this state that captivates our four senses, our four seasons, especially in this season of warmth and growth when our senses just seem to burst. And we are so much more aware of your amazing creation. Thank you for the Holland Zealand community. We have so many generous and caring people in our communities. Help us to continue to be one of those places, one of the best places in the country to live. Not because of businesses or house sizes or even our beautiful lakeshore, but because we are a people that support and look out for each other, all in the name of Christ Jesus. Thank you for our families, many of who are grandparents who bring wisdom and assurance. Thank you for our children who guide our next generation. Thank you for our young adults who bring excitement and creativity. Thank you for our youth who bring energy and promise. Thank you for our children who bring hope and innocence. And thank you for all of those that you have placed in our lives that walk alongside us each day. Thank you for Heart Awake and all three worshiping communities. Thank you for our outreach ministries of Neighbors Plus. We pray a blessing upon our sister church, Missione and Pastor Florencio. Help us to seek to bond together even stronger so that we may better go forth into our circles, bestowing your love and compassion. Lord, thank you for being a God who hears our prayers. Thank you for being a God who watches over and protects and restores his people. As we continue to prepare our hearts through the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray and the preaching of the word, we pause to bring before you our family this morning. We give you thanks for answered prayers for those who are recovering from surgery and illness. We pray for those who continue to struggle with ongoing sickness. And we pray for those in our midst who are awaiting upcoming surgery this week. We pray for our 150 individuals, our middle school kids and leaders and volunteers on our campus this coming week. Pray for a hedge of protection to surround them as they head to various work sites, for relationships to blossom and to grow, and most importantly, that the Holy Spirit will be our strength and shield as the enemy will do all that he can to disrupt this life-changing ministry. We give thanks for the many local businesses and individuals who continue to support this community-wide ministry year after year. It is all to honor and glorify you. Holy Spirit, through your power, may your word inspire us this morning. Teach us your truth. We pray for Pastor Bill as he brings us your message, as you guide him through the words you want us to hear. Clear away all that distracts as we seek to keep our focus on you. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. As we release these prayers into your hands, 
We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Son, Jesus the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mary. Exhausted and exhilarated. Uh, that's ministry, isn't it? Uh, we're glad to be a part of that. One of the things that I'm very thankful for is the way that Hardawike, with three different worshiping communities, still comes together for mission uh, in very interesting and extraordinary ways. And this is one of those where we're as much a part of uh, investing in 150 uh, young people and leaders as they seek to um, let the God be at work in them. Well, we're preaching through the book of Acts, and before I read to you the text for this morning, I want to make you aware of something. Uh, think for just a moment. If I were to say that I wanted to show you an important archaeological discovery, a fragment of a papyrus containing the text from which I'll be preaching, Acts 18, 27 through 28, if I could show you that scrap that is about 300 years, was written about 300 AD, that is about 240 years after Luke wrote Acts, this was written. How far would you have to go? Imagine if while we were there, we could also at the same display see an ancient papyrus, actually a book, an early book called a codex. It's 100 years older than that fragment that I'll be preaching from. And it also contains every word of the book of Hebrews, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, nearly every verse in all four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and significant portions of nearly every other book in the New Testament. How far would you have to go to see those archeological wonders? Any idea? About 160 miles to the University of oh, Michigan. They have a text library that includes uh, archeological manuscripts, fragments, codexes from early, early on. 160 miles away, these uh, early copies of the New Testament are there to be seen. Um, my Greek is a little weak, but I could probably read most of it. Isn't that fascinating? They have those at the University of Michigan across the globe right now. There's about over 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts that have been discovered and identified or being cataloged and studied. That amounts to more than 2.6 million pages, various copies of the New Testament books. Study ancient documents and what's astounding is how different the witness of the New Testament is than any other book, how much more archeological record we have than anything by comparison, closer in time, more abundant in copies. It's amazing when we hold this book, how it's been preserved. Now this morning, I'm gonna begin reading highlighted verses through uh, the book of Acts chapter 18. So follow with me if you will. We'll get those on the screen and you'll be able to see them. All right. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. 
There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he would then reason in the synagogue, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Now, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching and to testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, He shook out his clothes in protest, and he said to them, your blood be on your heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then listen what Paul does. It's amazing. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door. (laughs) He shakes out his clothes and goes right next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Now, Crispus, who had been the synagogue leader, and his entire household believe in the Lord, And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. And the way we do this in our English text, this is in red letters. This is the voice of Jesus. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people yet in this city. So... Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the Word of God a little further down. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters, and he sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived in Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. He later heads on and is out of the picture from here on out in this chapter. Meanwhile, beginning at verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor, and he taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Ah, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos went to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him, and they wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you uh, that centuries ago, a trained physician, Luke by name, would speak with eyewitnesses, gather the information, double check it, sometimes be a participant in the very events that he recorded, but that he would write them down under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, and that in amazing ways, you preserve those texts across centuries. Nearby, we have ancient copies of these very books. Even now, Holy Spirit, as you oversaw that process, illumine our hearts and minds that we might receive not simply a new idea, but that we might hear from your voice the call of your grace and adoption, the empowering to service that comes through the Holy Spirit. 
Guard your people from my brokenness. It is so abundant. Yet even in that, may Jesus be seen and loved. For we pray together all these things in his mighty name. Amen and amen. Well, as we look at this particular uh, chapter in our study through the book of Acts, there's three things uh, I want to look at, three insights that stood out to me in this text, and they all center on the Apostle Paul. Uh, We see his prayer life, and that's going to be an important encouragement, challenge for us. We see his perspective on women. There's something I don't want you to miss going on here. And thirdly, we see how Paul, anointed of God, passes on the faith. You see, what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through Paul's life, the focus of this chapter, that central message for us, I believe the Holy Spirit desires to do these same things in each one of us. We can be a part of it. So let's dig in to Acts 18. We're going to see here, first of all, Paul, and he starts off the chapter. He moves locations. He's just been in Athens. Remember, he spoke in the marketplace there, helped them connect to things that were in their cultural memory, an unknown God. Talked about that last week. But now he relocates from Athens to Corinth. After this, it says, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. You know what stands out to me in that passage? Paul was alone, and he arrived in Corinth not knowing anyone, apparently. While there in Corinth, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius, the emperor, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. So here's Paul. He's left from Athens to Corinth. He's alone. He's paying the bills. He's got to work. That's how he meets up with Aquila, is in the workplace. And he's also, as he preaches, opposed. Listen to verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive. So here's Paul. He's left the cultural pinnacle of that region. It's like going from, uh, going from Athens to Corinth. It's like going from New York City to New Orleans, from a center of culture and finance and art to a sleazy port town with all the debauchery that goes with that. And here he is, alone, paying the bills, opposed. Breathe that in and ponder it. And how do you feel? When you're alone, having to pay the bills, and opposed. Don't kid yourself. That great American philosopher Vince Lombardi once said, exhaustion makes cowards of us all. It's not reading into the text to picture Paul here feeling a bit overwhelmed, a bit challenged, called but, but hard-pressed. So, if this is a discouraging time, if we see Paul facing discouragement, and friends, we need to be honest, believers face discouragement. Count it not odd, but don't count it as the end, all right? What does Paul do there in Corinth? Well, we see that he meets Aquila while working. He's got to pay the bills, so he does what he's been trained or what he knows to do. 
He's a tent maker. He starts doing that, and in the course of that, he builds relationships. Aquila and his wife Priscilla will be lifelong friends for Paul. He walked into the town knowing no one. He would later leave with close friends. That's how he dealt with his discouragement. He continued to share the gospel. He continued to preach and to let Jesus be known. Apparently, Priscilla and Aquila were both converted under his ministry. Eventually, his friends would would join him. They'd come from Athens, and so they'd begin to build that community, plant that church in that city, Corinth. He would be able to stop working, but he would still face opposition. And I want to point out to you how Paul found encouragement in his prayer life. Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack you and harm you. Because I have many people yet in this city. Paul prays. And oh, what a prayer life Paul brings to his discouragement. He has a vision. Jesus speaks, as I said, if you look in an English translation, that's a red-letter Bible. That's usually a way we kind of signify this comes from Jesus. This is one of those passages in Acts, after the ascension, that Jesus speaks clearly enough that we put it in red. It happens several times in Acts. It's not just once. Well, I want to tell you, this raises two, I think, important questions for us, and I want to look at them one by one. The first question is this, and you see, it comes from an important tension in the text. We usually think about obedience to God leading to blessing, don't we? Oh, if I'll obey God, everything will work out. Obedience becomes the pathway to a life that's pleasant and working out. Good things happen to those who obey. And we think that, we expect that, we hope that because it often does. Not going to deny that. If we can keep our hearts grounded in the gospel and see the fruit of the Holy Spirit living out in us, then our lives will be more productive and happy. No doubt about it. We'll have less emotional energy wasted on anger and sulking and unforgiveness. Of course, that's more productive. People like to be around someone who is filled with love and joy and peace, don't they? Well, of course. We often connect obeying God with blessing, but it's not always the case And we dare not expect or demand that it's always the case. It certainly wasn't the case for Paul right here. Have you ever been in a situation where your work supervisor wanted you to act unethically? Where obeying God would put you at loggerheads with your supervisor. Perhaps they want you to misrepresent a product or customer not offer services to particular people? What if unwilling to compromise led to being passed over for a promotion? You know, A, that can happen. B, it does. It's possible to live according to God's values 
And that living puts you at odds with the world. I know that students face this all the time. And older folks like me need to be aware of that. I've spent time with students. I've seen this. A friend wants to show you a pornographic website on your phone. You understand that a smartphone with an internet connection can connect your child or grandchild or you to more stuff than Caligula and Nero, debauched emperors of Rome could ever touch. A friend wants to show that to you. You know to say no is going to put you on the outs with your circle of friends. You step back and refuse to get involved in bullying someone online. That too, suddenly you're on the outside of your middle school society, whatever it is you face. Living according to God's values may put you at odds with the world at times. Certainly that's what happened to Paul. He was there and he made the gospel known. And for that, people were upset. I want to ask you this question. Has your obedience ever led to discouragement? Where you thought, you know, I was the good guy. And because of that, I finished third. Has your obedience ever led to discouragement? It can happen. But there's a second question I want to ask, and you'll sense, I have a a real sense of urgency here. If we were out on the lake in a nice sailboat, just kind of relaxing, catching the wind, but we could see on the horizon first a dark cloud the size, I love how Elisha talks about the size of a man's hand, but it begins to come towards us. If you saw that dark cloud and that thunderstorm and were far out on Lake Michigan, wouldn't you want to get ready? Wouldn't it be time to maybe pull down some sails, maybe make sure everybody has a a life preserver, even get that life preserver lashed to someplace solid on deck, maybe close up some of the uh, portals, windows, lock things down so that whatever storm hits, you're able to weather it. Friends, the question I want to ask is this. Could the prayer life you have now be a source of refreshing if you ever experience discouragement because of your obedience to Jesus? Could the prayer life that you have now, I'm, consider what it's like for you to pray. Could that be a source of refreshing if you were to face that kind of discouragement? Where do you learn to grow or to to build into that sort of prayer life? Do some people just have it and others not? Do they get it somehow and and you don't? I wanna tell you some things I've learned over time and that I see through the scriptures. You don't get that sort of prayer life where Paul could hear the voice of Jesus overpowering the discouragement that was the fruit of his obedience to God. Paul hears a voice. He didn't get that prayer life from just showing up. You won't catch that prayer life like the flu. It doesn't just come from your surroundings. As a guy with multiple seminary degrees, I want to tell you, you don't get that prayer life from going to school or college or seminary. You know what you get from doing all that? You learn how to pass classes, which is not a bad thing. I've done a lot of it. 
but passing classes, even reading books, is not what builds the prayer life that we observe in Paul in this text. I want to suggest to you that this sort of prayer life, the prayer life you see in Paul, that gives him courage to stand against opposition, that sort of prayer life is interaction with a living God who speaks. And that's normative Christian life. It's not just for the few. It's not just for the credentialed. It's the offer of God's grace to all his children. We love Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. How about John 10, the whole chapter, several times we read, my sheep hear my voice. If he's my shepherd, am I hearing his voice? Jesus says, my sheep listen to me. My sheep recognize me. Recognize me. Jesus says clearly, we need to learn discernment. How do we distinguish the voice of Jesus from all the other voices, both internal and external? The orphan voice in my heart, left there by hurtful people or experiences. My own pride, my own fear. Plenty of people, believe me, have come to me and said, well, God told me, fill in the blank. I'd listen because I do believe God speaks. But sometimes somebody will tell me something that, and give God credit for it. I know that the voice they heard runs counter to the message of the Bible. Even when they have a theology or a Bible verse for what they heard. We need to learn discernment. Discernment as we invest our lives in the written word, as we have accountable spiritual community. What if I make a mistake though, pastor? What if I think I've heard the voice of God? I want to tell you something, and I've learned this the hard way. God can teach you in that mistake. The biggest mistake of all is not pursuing what God has promised. Ponder that. How'd you like to get to the end and say, God offered so much more and I was nervous. Now, I want to say something, and I say this more and more. I, I don't preach that way. That's not meant as the shame of failure. You'd better get to work. I know that when I, I speak in that manner, sometimes folks can hear, oh, I failed again. I'd better get to work. Or maybe they say, uh, somebody should know. I, why don't I? Oh, gosh. Other times, people get defensive. I have stories where I call people to maybe invest a little more time in prayer, and immediately, my prayer life is as good as yours. Fine. Please don't hear in my voice the shame of failure get to work. What I want you to hear, what I believe is the heart of Jesus, I hope I can communicate, is an invitation to more, to more of the life of prayer. I'm thankful that at my age, prayer is deeper and richer than it was when I began ministry. That things have developed over time. That kind of prayer life would strengthen your obedience. It would be a source of security in a world that's insecure. Isn't that good news? It would be a river of life when your heart is feeling like a dry desert. Oh, that sort of prayer life can make a difference. I believe that's what God is calling us to. And I, there's ways to find that. Now, let me point out something real quickly before I go to the third point. One, I want to keep looking at the Apostle Paul, but I want you to see that something has changed in his life. 
Paul grew up as a Pharisee, trained and shaped by that kind of culture. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and by now, he's written the book of Galatians, and now he finds himself in Corinth. Let's go back to Galatians. Paul writes, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female for all are one in Christ. I wanna suggest to you that we see a change in Paul, raised a Pharisee. After he meets Christ, he's considering the second missionary uh, journey. He gets a vision, again in his prayer life, see how important that was, he gets a vision of a Macedonian man, so they cross over to Macedonia, and the first person he preaches to is a Macedonian woman. Only a guy who says, in Christ there is neither male nor female, could have a vision of a man and happily preach to a woman. A change has gone on in Paul's life. Here, he comes to Corinth, he meets Aquila, and through him meets the wife Priscilla. From then on, it's interesting, the scripture refers to them as Priscilla and Aquila. The woman first, very unusual in literature of that time. Now, Priscilla and Aquila are still married. They're still husband and wife. But in terms of the vision, she apparently was gifted in such a way that she is key. Paul mentions her in 1 Corinthians and in Romans and finally in 2 Timothy. The dramatic change from Paul's Pharisee upbringing, where women were in the shadow of men, is also a dramatic contrast to Roman culture where women were second class, just objects of sex and for family. The gospel has changed Paul, and we see him living that out. He's no longer Jewish in culture or Roman in culture in his treatment of women, at least. He's been shaped by the gospel of Christ. And I want to suggest to you, we've seen this same struggle in the church over the past century or half a century. There have been churches that have held to what I'll call just for passing the traditional view of women, valued as wives and sisters and daughters, workers, helpers, missionaries, but not so much as officers or as pastors. Other churches, I'll call them just for way of handle, the modern view have valued women as equals with men, almost even in an interchangeable way. An open workplace, open education, and of course, as church officers, let me suggest that it, and this is worth a much longer conversation. If you'd like to have it, let's get coffee or a meal. I'm happy to talk about this. The gospel is a different motivation and guide on this, and we see it in Paul. Regardless of your upbringing or the surrounding culture, whether Pharisee or Roman, whether traditional or modern, I believe the gospel calls us to see that men and women are both valued image bearers of God. When men or women respond to God's grace with faith, they all become deeply loved, fully adopted children of the great creator king, sons and daughters. Paul would write that in Galatians 3 and then live it out with Priscilla the wife of his friend and fellow worker, Aquila. To speak clearly, I think that's what opens the office of elder or deacon to both women and men. Women will continue to be wives and men husbands. 
It's women who are moms and men who are dads. But for me, it is struggling with the gospel, what's written in the scripture, what that says. It's not a traditional or a modern culture that shapes my life or ours. Now I have friends and people who I respect that would disagree with me on this, that's fine. But all of us, even those who disagree with me, all agree that the scripture is what shapes our, shape, our practice, not any culture, traditional, modern, or otherwise. So ponder, something has changed for Paul. And that's the fascinating case of Priscilla. Boy, I got carried away. What is it that shapes his internal or his external? I believe for Paul, and the call for us is always to be shaped by this, Christ and the gospel. There will be times that the world offers us two options, and we're going to have to say, no thanks, neither. I'm going with the gospel. Well, finally, I want to think about how Paul passed on the faith. We start Acts chapter 18. Paul is alone in verse 1. He continues to work as a self-supporting missionary. He meets Aquila. He begins to evangelize and then disciple Priscilla and Aquila, the husband team that he begins to work with. They join Paul in his mission, and they become an integral part of God's work. They leave Corinth together, and they go to Ephesus. And after receives the ministry there, Paul went on to Caesarea while Priscilla and Aquila stayed in Ephesus. And while in Ephesus, they meet a man named Apollos. Now, Apollos has a deep sense in the Old Testament and knows something of Christ. But when they hear him preach, Priscilla and Aquila invite him to their home. And they show him and explain him the way of God more adequately. They train and teach him. Apollos would eventually move on to a different part of Greece, that is Achaia. And when he arrived, the scripture says he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. Look at this. Paul alone, then Paul with Priscilla and Aquila. They separate ways. Paul heads off to a different mission. Priscilla and Aquila explain the way to Apollos. Apollos becomes God's minister to the believers in Achaia. Friends, this is how the gospel extends. This is how the mission of God goes forward. Notice, not a college or seminary anywhere. Now, what we do see happening here is the spiritual formation of believers, the expansion and extension of the kingdom of God. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm thankful for the chance I had to go to college and the opportunity to go to seminary. And I think those are good things that supplement a calling for discipled, spiritually formed people. But I think those are bad things to replace calling and spiritual formation. Calling and spiritual formation, those are the things that matter. What we see in this chain from Paul to Apollos is what I'd call disciple-making. It's taking people, working with them, and sharing the gospel while you work. Sharing meals together, studying together. My guess is that Priscilla and Aquila often prayed with Paul, and that's where they learned to pray. How do you develop a prayer life? Not by passing tests in a class on prayer. 
Be with someone who knows how to pray. Let them give you the life of prayer, and then you carry on and pass it on to someone else, like a baton that passes from one to the other. I dare say one of the challenges in our nation right now is that there are an abundance of churches. I've listened to these pastors and talked with them who passed the class but never developed the life. And you can be overwhelmed in ministry in that moment when the strongest thing you have to say to your discouragement is I have a diploma. Friends, let me tell you, this is just a little passing thing that came to me yesterday in wrapping up my preparation. How do we do spiritual formation? What are the, what are the ways that gospel life change happens? In light of what we see here, I want to tell you, I think it's about life on life. And what I love about from Paul to Apollos is you see four generations. Paul passes it on to Priscilla and Aquila. They pass it on to Apollos, Apollos to other people. Paul can be out of the mix and the gospel continues when you do ministry and spiritual formation this way. You know how that happens? I think there's a couple of different odds. This will go, you don't have to agree with this. You just see what moves Bill's thinking, all right? I think if you show up, there's about a 1% chance you can experience spiritual formation. Now that's a hundred times more than somebody who doesn't show up. So I'm not playing that down. But it was Martin Luther who said, you can sleep in a barn all you want. You'll never become a cow. Showing up is good for the 1%. Now, I've committed my life to brilliant gospel-centered preaching. And I'm going to rate that about 10%. Much better. Gospel-centered preaching will move your life in spiritual formation ways much better than just showing up and hearing moralistic preaching. But you know where I see gospel-centered life change happening? I'm going to call this a spiritual small group where people learn to speak and be safe with one another, share more than just are the Tigers going to win the pennant this year, begin to interact on what's the struggle of sin in your heart that leads to this behavior, what does the Scripture promise us, how do we enter into that? Far more effective. You see, the spiritual small group is kind of what Paul had. That's how it passed there. But the goal of even a spiritual small group is what I'd call with Christ in the school of prayer. When I was a college student, I kept noticing that so many of the people that I respected said they didn't learn to pray until they'd spent time in Andrew Murray's book, With Christ in the School of Prayer. And so, smart guy that I was, I got the book too. And you know what the thrust of the book is? To help people meet Christ in his school of prayer so that he might teach them. And I read it, and it was like a brick to me. (laughs) About three years later, I read it again, and it was like a brick to me. (laughs) And Billy Graham was still Billy Graham, and Francis Schaeffer was still Francis Schaeffer, all these people I respected. Then I read it a final time, and something stood out. And it was like a key and a lock to my heart. And I took a step in. You see, 
I could have passed a test on Andrew Murray's book, but it wasn't until Andrew Murray's book helped me be with Jesus in the school of prayer. Friends, that's how it happens. That's how churches pass on the faith, life on life, not brilliant preaching. That's how we shape a culture when it would rather shape us. I want to introduce you in closing to a historical figure that I've heard Mary Lynn in a book uh, read about, and then I dug into him. His name is Caspar Tenboom, and he's Dutch. He was born in Harlem, Netherlands in 1859, whole two centuries ago. Aged 18, he moved to Amsterdam, and he started a jewelry city there. Simple man, but while there, he started a ministry among poor people called For the Salvation of the People. Now, later, he'd returned to Harlem where he raised a family, where he worked and lived. He was a craftsman. He only had available uh, primary school education. 1918, he and his family are in Harlem. World War I is winding down. They took in, for the first time, many foster children. Casper is 58 years old when he does that. It's amazing. His daughter, Corey, who you know is Corey Tenboom, began to run a special church service for disabled children. During that time, Casper's wife passed away, and a storm called Nazism began to gather over Europe. In 1940, the Nazis invaded and overran the Netherlands. Casper was alone with his two unmarried daughters but they immediately began to provide shelter, hidden shelter, changed their house architecture, built a hidden room to house persecuted Jewish people. Two years later, when the Nazis required Dutch Jews to wear the yellow patch, the Star of David, Casper voluntarily wore one also. He was already actively involved in hiding and transporting Jews to England. Two years later, February of 1944, four months before Allied troops would land on Normandy, the Gestapo raided the Ten Boom home. They arrested Casper, his four children, and grandson, who were all there visiting. But they never found the Jews hidden in the secret room, even in that time. When they dragged all those people off and Casper Ten Boom was interrogated in prison that day, the Gestapo looked at him. He's now in his 80s. The Gestapo told him they would release him because of his age so that he could die in his own bed. He was two months shy of 85 years old. Caspar Tenboom looked at that Nazi and said, if I go home today, tomorrow I will open my door to anyone who needs help. Friends, that is how the gospel of God's grace speaks to evil. When asked if he knew he could die for helping Jews, he replied, it would be an honor to give my life for God's chosen people. Ten days later, Casper died from the abuse and interrogation. He hadn't gone to university or seminary. But Casper Ten Boom clearly spent a lifetime alongside Jesus in mission with the poor people, with his daughter's ministry to disabled children, fostering, praying, serving so that he could stand. Friends, he was shaped by Christ. He could quell his inner fears and resist a corrupt culture because he 
had red letter prayers. He could hear the voice of Jesus. I believe Jesus is calling us to that. I encourage you, let's find a way. Let's meet together. Let's, let's take a step in prayer. Hear that invitation of grace. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for your marvelous word. And in this time, we thank you that there is no condemnation for your people, but there's a marvelous invitation to more than we may have ever known. Guide us in that. May celebration be a people of grace. We recognize uh, not simply one another's accomplishments, but one another's needs and brokenness, and we care for each other. We bring each other to the throne of your grace. Be with us, for indeed our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and him alone. For we pray in his mighty name, amen and amen. Let's stand and sing together. And now may the grace of Christ, which daily renews us, and the love of God, which enables us to love all, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which unites us in one body, may he make us eager to obey the will of God until we meet again through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen.